Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Frank Morano on 77 WABC. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Well, what happens when you die? Does your consciousness continue? Do you end up somewhere else? These are questions that human beings have pondered since human beings were able to ponder anything. Going way back, long before the time of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans, folks were left seeking explanations for what happens when you die. Well, our next guest may have some answers. It is a real thrill to be able to welcome Raymond Moody, a philosopher, a psychiatrist, a physician, a best-selling author, and a gentleman who is widely known for his books about the afterlife and about near-death experiences, a term that didn't even exist until he coined it. Uh, Dr. Moody, it is a real thrill to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. And thank you so much for this invitation. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you, sir. Uh, now the uh, pleasure is all is all ours. Now you are a man of science. You're both an MD and a PhD. And when we mm-hmm. think of things like the afterlife, near death experiences, mm-hmm. we tend to think of the metaphysical, of uh, the religious, the spiritual things that don't always jive with science. Now, when you started on right. your mm-hmm. career journey, you were an atheist, a scientist, and uh-huh. a skeptic. What began you on your research mm-hmm. into this field of near-death experiences? Well, you know, I just didn't grow up in a religious environment. I was kind of immune to that. And I got to the University of Virginia at age 18. And uh, uh, in my philosophy course, the first few days, I read about uh, in Plato's Republic, the story of a man who was believed dead during a battle and, and revived. And um I was impressed because, you know, to tell you the truth, up to that point, I never realized that anybody took the notion of an afterlife seriously. I thought it was kind of in the realm more of humor. So um, I was really startled that somebody who immediately became my hero and still is, uh, Plato, as soon as I started reading him, and uh, that he was impressed by this. So to make a long story short about – Three years later, two years later, I met a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia who actually had had this experience himself. And so subsequently to that, I've talked with thousands of people from all over the world who uh, came to the brink of death and had these uh, really quite inspiring and life-changing experiences. By the way, if people want to check out Dr. Moody's books or see some of the videos that he's done on some of the subjects we're covering, you can go to his website, lifeafterlife.com. A number of the best-selling books that he's written on these subjects are available there. Uh, Dr. Moody, how did you know, uh, how many people would you say that you've spoken to over the years? I know you alluded to thousands, but how many people Mm -hmm. have shared experiences regarding near-death experiences or even afterlife experiences? Well, this has been more or less a constant in my life going on uh, 60 years now. And so, I mean, the week 
never passes essentially that I don't hear some of these. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, I, there's no way of estimating, but uh, surely thousands and continue to hear them. I mean, this is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why my book arrived with such a start to the public in 1976 was that even those, though these experiences were known since antiquity, um, in the 60s, essentially, the cardiopulmonary resuscitation techniques developed to such a point that many, many people uh, were being pulled back from a state that, you know, had been called death until then. And uh, so even though there were always such experiences, the the opportunity to get back alive from a close call with death, you know, greatly uh, expanded in the 60s. And so that's that's why this people suddenly woke up to this thing that is is part and parcel of human culture, as you were saying there, going back uh, thousands of years. And that book that was such a game changer is also called Life After Life. It remains a bestseller mm-hmm. to this day. What mm-hmm. are some of the common themes that have emerged with people that you've spoken to regarding their own near-death experiences? Mm-hmm. We've always heard stories about people seeing a uh, a bright light or something of that nature. Right. Is that mm-hmm. part of the theme in the folks that you've spoken to? It is. About? It is. It's uh, like there's about 15 or so common elements that if you – if you interview thousands or hundreds of people, you'll see these uh, these 15 or so common elements pop up. Like one one person may report two or three or four of them or five or six or seven. Or in rare cases, it's usually when people are in these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests, they, they report the whole panoply of 15 things but basically the the more common elements are people say that um they often talk about hearing the doctor or nurse or somebody else say oh my god he's dead or we've lost him or words to that effect but they say that uh, it it that strikes them as odd because they say that as i've heard a lot of people over the years say the same thing in, in the different parts of the world, the same formulation. People say, uh, I never was so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. Uh, people relate this as an intensification of consciousness, not like you might imagine on the analogy of going to sleep, kind of losing consciousness. They say it's more like waking up, and they find themselves viewing their own physical body from a point of view outside or above it. They can, they tell us that they can hear and understand what the doctors and nurses are communicating, not as though they hear a physical voice, but rather as though they can uh, sort of tune in on what the doctors and nurses are thinking. Um and uh, then at a certain point, it there's the, often becomes a sort of awareness that oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm out of my body. What is, you know, and a sort of dawning realization that oh my God, I must be dying. And uh, that seems to open up a, a series of events that no matter how articulate they are. Yeah, you know, as people say, um, or educated, they say, I just don't have the words to describe it. It's beyond 
any verbal um, description, but they say that the best they can put it is to say that they go through a passageway, which they often compare to a tunnel or a hallway, uh, and come out on the other side of it into an incredibly brilliant and uh, loving and comforting light. It's like far brighter than anything we experience here, but uh, nonetheless, they say not uncomfortable to the eyes as a bright light would be. And uh, as they go into this, they talk about that feeling of uh, intense love. People often say that they see or meet um, deceased relatives or friends of, of theirs who have died who are uh, there. Um, people say that it's not that you see a physical body, but that you there is a kind of form which they find hard to describe, but that you recognize the person through the joint memories and the feelings. And uh, most remarkably to me out of this talk, people talk about uh, seeing holographic panoramas in which time stands still and everything they ever have done in their lives is kind of projected around around them and a panorama, and uh, they can see each interaction in this timeless state. And people relate how in this playback of your life, you you see it also through the eyes and feelings of those with whom you've interacted. That if you see yourself doing something unkind to somebody, then you feel the hurt feelings. Or if you see yourself doing loving actions to someone, you feel really, you know, um, gratified and happy. So um, people often talk about experiencing this life review in a company of a being of complete compassion and love who sort of helps them through it and to understand it. And so coming back, as you can imagine, Frank, is a, as I know you've heard from people, is a, a startling experience. It's uh, People say that it's like You've seen reality, but now you come back into this kind of dreamlike state. And that uh, I've heard, I've known people who were describing to me, um, you know, experiences they had decades before, but but say that even after that time, there's a sort of longing or nostalgia. People say that, uh, and when they do come back, they say whatever they were chasing before. You know, some people chase knowledge like me. Some people chase power or fame or money or whatever it is. But whatever people were chasing up to that point, they say that uh, they become aware that uh, what this life is all about is learning to love. So they make a commitment. I, I hear constantly from people, you know, it's um, it doesn't make you a saint, right? That it, it presents a challenge to live up to this rather than to, and you still find yourself stumbling like all of us do. But um, it does have enormous impact on people. And oh, I, and uh, and sort of, in, you know, to them, this is, it satisfies them that, that, you know, what we call death is a transition to another world. Are there do there tend to be differences between adults or the elderly who may have near death experiences versus, say, children who are in an accident or have some severe illness and a child mm -hmm. that has a near death experience? 
Well, you know, from my experience of them that I've heard over the years, and pediatricians who studied this, I think, often have a common, the same impression, is that kids may use a different vocabulary, but you get the sense that they're mm. they're talking about the same thing. Yeah, this talk about displacement from the body and a light and uh, helping figures and, and even a life review. I remember a very, um, just an experience that kind of really touches me to this day of a man, a restaurant manager I met in. Savannah, Georgia, who had um, uh, had a, a near-death experience at the age of 11, and even then was talking about this uh, review of his life, which he experienced, which sort of gave him comfort for the rest of his life. So, I mean, you know, these are are very, very poignant and touching experiences for people. Sure. Sure. Uh, talking with uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, you can check out his website, lifeafterlife.com. Dr. Moody, is there any way to know if some of these common themes that people who've experienced trauma or near death have experienced that they've shared with you and others, is there any way to know, I mean, there are going to be some skeptics in our audience that mm-hmm. uh, try to chalk this mm-hmm. up to something like a hallucination. Is there any way to know mm-hmm. whether or not what these people are experiencing is a hallucination? Well, you know, Frank, that's interesting. I mean, I as a, I have taught epistemology as a philosopher professor, which is theory of knowledge, like how do we know things? And I've also been a clinical practicing psychiatrist who deals all the time with hallucinations. And, um, you know, that concept of hallucination, that's come something that comes up in a what we call a decision tree. And when I when I go to the ER and somebody's seeing pink rats, which actually does occur, or, or little bugs or stuff crawling over them in DTs, um, you know, the reason I call that a hallucination is because it's part of a decision tree and what to know what to do for that person. But it's a very different situation to talk about, you know, like hundreds and thousands and millions, according to the Gallup survey, of people who've been through the brink of death and had these very transformative life experiences. You know, it's um, that that is more epistemology than clinical method. Uh, or clinical considerations, if you see what I mean. This is sure. this is a very big question, and uh, you know, it's like I, it's like to me a great tragedy that you hear people talk about oh, scientific evidence of life after death and such. And I, I too, am a lover of science, but in 2022, the um, the question of life after death is not yet ripe for scientific inquiry because there's no clear way as your question kind of implies there um there's no clear way of how do you know what do you mean when you talk about a life after death in the first place right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and i mean it's not we may have happy images and good feelings and all but to to bear down and say what in the world are we talking about is a very tough thing. And some of the great philosophers have pointed out some of the difficulties we get into. Plato pointed out, for example, that we've always got to have a story 
because there's no clear concept. But then we get into the thing where just the accumulation of stories, even, you know, thousands and thousands of wonderful stories of near-death experiences. And I can't hear, you know, I can't wait to hear the next one, right? But that that process is never going to add up to um, a rational proof. But on the other hand, I will say this, I mean, and I say this more from my, as I said in Life After Life, I, you know, I came into this from the point of view of logic and philosophy of language primarily. And that's where the, the solution lies because the, the great thinkers in logic and philosophy have pointed out the, the actual difficulties that face rational inquiry into afterlife. And, it, it, you know, I know this is getting abstract, but at the risk of boring our, our listeners, I'd say that I claim that we can actually do it. There is a way that we can actually get around these big problems and reformat our minds in such a way that when subsequently we happen to have a near-death experience, the inexpressibility problem will be no longer be the problem it mm. was that we may have a new and it's already happened once I, I mean i won't go into details but I, i've developed this program um actually over decades for teaching logic and, and so on and um and knowing full well that eventually somebody who had been through this would have a near-death experience and be able to talk about it in a new way. And it happened. A very eminent scientist and artist and, and very wonderful man, in, in addition to those qualifications, had um, you know, had a near-death experience after um, after taking this course and, and had the reaction just in that. You know, it's plain that you would have. I mean, this is a very complicated thing. But what I'm saying sure. is I claim that we are on the verge of entirely new ways of investigating this question. And although it's not a scientific question, but still a philosophical question in 2022, I think there are actually uh, verifiable, testable ways now to study this with a view toward um, you know, giving credence or the lack of it to the question of an afterlife. By the way, is you know, people always say, "Oh, this is just the oxygen deprivation to the brain," right? Is the and that goes back for a long time that kind of argument. But sure. in reality, there's nothing to that argument because it's um, it's a plain fact that it's very common for bystanders at the death of someone else who have not themselves been ill or injured will nonetheless have all of these things that we talk about, the leaving of the body or the seeing some, the body, the spirit or whatever it is, leave the body of the dying person or, or um, people saying that they themselves left their body and accompanied their dying loved one part way toward this light, or even cases, uh, and, and I've had from a physician, for example, who uh, kind of tuned in on the um, uh, the life review of his patient who was dying, who was um, not a patient he had ever met. He was just called to the ER to um, resuscitate this man. But I mean, what I'm getting at is that 
it's like that old idea, oh, this is oxygen deprivation. That may help people who are afraid of this idea of an afterlife. And um, I can kind of empathize with them. You know, I mean, I'm not afraid, but I, I, you know, people talk about, oh, everybody wants there to be an afterlife. That is just not the case. I, you know, going back, back to antiquity, there were um, whole people who are just some people who don't want there to be. And I've talked to a lot of them over the years. And um, so it's, it's not anything to do with wishful thinking. This is um, – we just – I think it's – you know, I'm happy to say I don't know, but I just think there's a lot of stuff about these experiences that take mm. place around the bedside of the dying that are just – we can't really solve it yet by the by the logic and mind that we have. But I, what I'm absolutely sure of is that we can transform our logic and our mind in such a way to uh, – Equip our mind to think about this afterlife question in a whole new way. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Two final questions that I want to get in before uh-huh. we uh, before we have to say goodbye is one: given your volume of experience over the last sixty years or so, talking with people that have uh, experienced these near death experiences and other similar experiences, what is your uh-huh. best guess about what happens to the human consciousness? after we die what do you think happens well i want to say first of all that i think there's an afterlife and at the same time i wouldn't want to try to convince anybody else of that it was a long thing for me to come to terms with but i finally just gave up i mean i don't know what else to say Uh, I am a skeptic in the genuine philosophical sense, which the so-called skeptics, they don't know what the word means even. It's it's a disgrace, really, that that group um, uses that term because uh, uh, the skeptical movement of Bipiro, uh, the uh, ancient Greek, is is uh, the method of um, approaching each question in such a way that you don't draw a conclusion. And so, you know, when somebody tells you, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. That person is contradicting themselves um, because they're saying, you know, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions and my conclusion is such and such. But that kind of ignorance aside, um, the skeptical well, I mean, I've always just been that way temperamentally. I just, I just my wife, it drives my wife crazy that I just, I've refused to draw conclusions. But um, but I give up. I, I There's no way to draw a logical conclusion, but I don't know what else to say. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I've had so many uh, doctors who are friends of mine, uh, Frank, who say, um, uh, you know, tell me that they had their their near death experience and uh, it was absolutely real. And I, I, you know, I asked myself, well, if I had a medical ailment, would I go to my friends? And the answer is yes, right? I mean, I trust their medical judgment completely. And at the same time, I mean, it's it's then you get into well, how can I question their joint unanimous opinion? You see that what they experience is real. And then another factor to me is these uh, 
cases where the physicians kind of actually interact with the near-death experience of the patient, as in a case of an emergency room doctor who had a conversation with the dead wife of the patient who was uh, being, you know, treated after an auto crash. I mean, you know, I just give up. I give up. I just, uh, you know, it's, uh, I understand all the difficulties in, um, in saying that. And, um, uh, and yet I just don't know what else to say. <laughs> sure. Apparently there is an afterlife. And also in, in regard to your question, I think that what I understand from all the people I've heard is that it, even though I've heard thousands of these cases, I can't really imagine it because that's what people say. There are no words that convey it to you. But where I've reached on this is like what I think happens, not trying to convince anyone else, is that at death your consciousness emerges into a um, a realm of consciousness that that doesn't operate by time-space coordinates. But according to, you know, the people that I've known who, who articulate this, it's like a very brilliant neurosurgeon you might know. Eben Alexander is like, he said, it's like the, the, instead of time and space, you're oriented by love and knowledge which is an exciting prospect, to say the least, I would think. Uh, Now, finally, sir, we've had a lot of people in our audience, like people all over the world, who've experienced loss of a loved one or a close friend. Having talked with so many people and examined so many people Mm -hmm. that have either passed away or been on the brink of dying, (laughs) do you have any tips for people who are remaining on the earth and dealing with, in some cases, immeasurable grief. Any suggestions? Oh, my goodness. Well, let me say, let me talk personally here. I I am one of those. I lost my first child at the age of 36 hours in mm. 1970. And, uh, um, of course, that was nine months old to us, right? And uh, so I... And and you see how you grapple with something that uh, like that over a lifetime. Plus, I've in my most of my practice really is is grief work and uh, being with people who uh, are have having uh, difficulties through grief. And so, why you know one thing I think we need to say on this from the very beginning is that to talk about the idea of. Uh, proof of an afterlife or something like that brings up immediately a a profound issue of professional ethics because the very group that you are talking about, which, you know, those who are in grief, if they hear something like, oh, scientific proof of an afterlife, they're going to be uplifted. Well, now imagine that time passes and that that so-called proof is discredited. If you see why the person is plunged back into the grief, plus maybe complications in addition to that. So, I mean, you just have to be very careful 
about making assessments, not just on the logical side, but on the side of professional ethics. And sure. that said, I mean, it is just something I hear all the time from people, from readers over decades and decades now, that in fact, um, you know, reading these accounts of near-death experiences or especially hearing them personally from a friend of yours or a relative that you trust and so on can be very comforting. And it, you know, is quite apart from any issue of whether it proves of an afterlife, it can be comforting. And even with that, you know, it's I, one thing I've heard from people going back decades with this who who talk about their grief experiences after having had their own near-death experiences. And they say, paradoxically, it makes the grieving even more acute. Mm. And the reason being, let's say you say that, though, there's an afterlife that you just say, I say I believe it because of my religion, right? Well, that is kind of a rationalization. But if you've had in your death experience, see, a rationalization is not possible. If you see what I mean, because the idea sure. is that they if they have the they they have the experience directly. So for them, there can't be a rationalization, and so that so a lot of people over the years have remarked to me that that you know it's. That strange as it may seem, that it makes the grief more acute because you you can't say anymore. Oh, I know, Grandma is in a beautiful place, so I'm not going to feel bad about it. Um, instead, they said, "Well, sure, I know Grandma is in a beautiful place, but I miss her." You see, mm-hmm. is the is the so I mean this it cuts both ways on the um the consolation side and uh and this in terms of rational inquiry into an afterlife, there will always have to be a, a even Plato pointed out this in his writings about thinking about the afterlife that there's always going to be an element of consolation in it and um and that it presents the most interesting questions. I mean, I, I am not – by the way, I wish I were a salesman type because I've got two kids <laughs> still at home, but <laughs> I'm not. But I'm not trying to sell a book, but for anybody who's interested in this research I was talking about, is like is, uh, it, the book is called Making Sense of Nonsense. And I published it about a year and a half ago. It's from Llewellyn Publishers, and uh, it talks about how to it talks about how to think about things that don't make sense, not just in the context of an afterlife, but in con in the context of uh, advertising or a, do- a medical doctor or a lawyer. I mean, it's you know, there's um, Dr. Seuss's books have sold over 600 million copies worldwide. Now, what is that appeal? Is um, um, I think that there's a very fundamental cognitive glitch in the way we think in the West, which has to do with that even though we love nonsense, um, um, 
uh, Ella Fitzgerald and um, Satchma, Louis Armstrong, and the scat singing, right, which is nonsense syllables, or glossolalia in the Christian tradition of religion, where it's nonsense syllables are used to induce an ecstatic state, or koans, where nonsense questions uh, induce a sort of extra-logical experience, mm. or um, playground rhymes of kids. You're too young to remember, Frank, but uh, those doo-wop music of the fixed 50s, which mixed uh, nonsense syllables with. Sure, uh, I love doo-wop. Uh, yeah. I love doo-wop. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, you know that that shows how putting them together, and you know, and so that's a whole world that we've missed, and so um, I think that we can fix that. That people love nonsense, but they hate the word nonsense. But there's a simple way to fix that. And um, you can once you do, you, there's, it opens up whole new ways of thinking about um, not just the question of life after death, but a lot of other important questions as well. Uh, uh, Dr. Moody, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time this morning, and I hope we could do this again My soon. God. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Anytime. I just had so much fun with this. And um, same, I'm just same uh, here. Thank you. And thanks so much to the listeners, too, for listening. Yeah, I'm, you have full license, everybody, to say I'm psychotic. But a lot of smart people have, uh, you know, read my book and they say, yeah, I'm, you know, then I've got, I'm on to something. That, yeah. that is for sure. If people want to check out your work, they can go to lifeafterlife.com. If people want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Dr. Raymond Moody, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.